0: Good morning, saints. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 31, will be our text this morning. John 20, verses 19 through 31. And for those of you who have been with us from the beginning of this series. It's been a glorious study in the book of John, and we're nearing its end. After today, we have two more sermons in the book of John. And I'm well aware of the fact that many people have also joined us during this sermon studies as well. So we look forward to continuing on in our next series, but as for today, let us look at our text. John 20, beginning at verse 19. I do invite you to hear. And receive the inspired and authoritative word of the triune God. This is his word, saints. This is his word. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to, to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger in the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you, having already confessed our weakness through song and in prayer. We are weak. We're prone to disbelief. We're prone to question you. Yet even in our weakness, we're at the very same time prone to act as if we're Lord of our own life. Lord, it's our prayer this morning that through your word, by the power of your spirit, you would help us to hear and see the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, that we might joyfully submit to him and his word which you have so graciously preserved for your church's benefit. Help us this morning, O oh Lord, to behold you and to exalt you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you that the verse immediately preceding our passage this morning includes Mary Magdalene's declaration wherein she says, I have seen the Lord. I have seen the Lord. Mary was the first to see the risen Lord Jesus. However, at that point, the disciples... Those who remained of the original twelve, those who Jesus hand-selected to follow him during his earthly ministries, those disciples had not yet seen the Lord. That is until the beginning of our passage this morning. But before we jump into our text, let us take note from our passage all the way until the end of the book. The focus is on Jesus and his interactions with his disciples. In this morning's passage, Jesus appears to his original and remaining 11 disciples. In next week's passage, passage, Jesus appears to seven of those disciples. In the week after that, the concluding passage, it's Jesus in a conversation with Peter. And so we take a step back even from this text with Jesus focusing on his disciples, and we remember that through John, or rather, in John chapter 13 through 17, the focus is the same. Jesus and his disciples. Five chapters there, almost two chapters here. The focus is on Jesus and his disciples. As a matter of fact, back in John chapter 13, verse 30, it is Judas who departs from the rest of the disciples and Jesus. And from John 13, 31 all the way through John 17, verse 26, it's Jesus. And these same 11 disciples. In other words, from chapters 13 onward in the book of John, the focus that dominates the book of John is, you guessed it, Jesus and his disciples. And so what do we do with this? Why is John doing this? Why is Jesus in the interactions with his disciples so important? Before the crucifixion, in chapters 13 through 17, what was Jesus doing? He was preparing his disciples for what was about to take place. But then, in chapters 18 and 19, Jesus is, in a very real sense, alone. Jesus advances towards the cross by himself, the soul, the lone representative of his people, such that as one man, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors, people like you and I. However, after Jesus' crucifixion and his death and his burial and his resurrection, Jesus is once again preparing his disciples for what is about to take place. And so I think that John does this for a few reasons, but let me suggest just one. I suggest that not only does the crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ matter for the church today. If you're a Christian, you would agree with that. But so also, does Jesus' interactions with his disciples both before and after his crucifixion? It's important for us to understand what Jesus has to say and what Jesus does as he interacts before and after His death with His disciples. What happens is deeply relevant for you and I today. And so this morning we sit here on the other side of the cross. We sit here in the presence of God by means of His Holy Spirit. But in our text, for the very first time, His disciples sat in the presence of the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Not by means of his spirit, but by means of his person. Before their very eyes, Jesus was there. And what Jesus said and did before those disciples is just as pertinent to us today as it was to them back then. I've entitled this sermon, The Resurrected Lord in the Presence of His Disciples, Why It Still Matters. And this brings us to the main idea of this passage, I believe, in this sermon, which is that this text displays at least three reasons, at least three reasons for you to trust and obey the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples' testimonies about him, both now and forevermore. And those, three listed, those three reasons are listed in your outline. We're going to look at apostolic peace and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in verses 19 through 26, and then apostolic proof in verses 27 through 29, and then apostolic purpose in verses 30 through 31. Let's begin with reason number one. The the first reason why you should trust and obey the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples' testimony is apostolic peace, in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and I'm going to let you know up front that the vast majority of my sermon is this point. As a matter of fact, at the end of the sermon, you might be able to charge me with preaching a one-point sermon with two appendices. So I'm letting you know up front, as you see the time tick, that, that we're on track still. Look with me, please, at verse 19. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and stood among them And said to them Peace be with you The first day of the week would have been a Sunday It's what we might call the Lord's Day That day is given that name Because it is the day that the Lord Jesus Christ Rose from the grave And historically the church has gathered for worship On the Lord's Day But, on the first Lord's Day, the disciples were doing anything but gathering for worship on the Lord's Day. Rather, the text says that the disciples were hiding behind locked doors, fearing that those same Jews who had Jesus arrested and then put to death might find them and do the very same thing to them. It is at that moment when Jesus appeared in their midst, And said, peace, peace be with you. Many people have said many things about the nature of Jesus' resurrected body on the basis of this text right here. They assume that he can transport through walls or through buildings. And I'm going to let you know right now, I'm not here to argue if he can or if he can't. But if we spend time on that, I think we're missing the point of the text. The point of the text is twofold. Number one, Jesus came to his disciples in the midst of their fear. And number two, he pronounced a blessing of well being, saying, Peace be with you. Let's look at the first part Jesus coming to his disciples. We, we might already be familiar with this. Remember back in John chapter 14, look with me, there in verse 18. Jesus, before he goes to the cross, in John 14, 18, says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. Same chapter, verses 28 and 29. He says, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you if you love me. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. It's taking place. There's a little while, a few short days where he's away. But he comes back, and, and the disciples are fearful. They've seen and heard all that's gone on, and they themselves think, how are we going to get through this? Our Lord, our, our master, he's done. And he arrives, and he says, peace, peace be with you. And that's the second point of this passage. Notice that three times in this text that I read, Jesus says, peace be with you. Anytime you're reading your Bible and you notice something repeated in a very short period or time, uh, a space is what I say. It's not a time period; space. You want to take note. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. Peace be with you. That's an indicator that that's the point of the text. In verse 19, he says it. In verse 21, he says it. In verse 26, he says it. And this is not a new concept that Jesus expressed to his disciples either. Remember in chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus says, Let not your hearts be troubled. In chapter 14, verse 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. In chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. And so before the cross, Jesus says, peace, peace, peace. And after the resurrection, Jesus comes back to those very same disciples that he's speaking to, and he says, peace, peace, peace difference what's the difference the difference is this that now it is the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ who utters these words in the presence of his disciples peace be with you prior to this Jesus offered wishful hopes that his disciples would find peace in him although he was on his way to die But now Jesus pronounces, not wishful hope, but a secure blessing upon his disciples, this blessing of peace as one who has defeated death. It's a very Hebrew idea. Peace be with you. In the Old Testament, you may be familiar with the idea of shalom. They would greet one another with shalom. The idea of shalom is having a a wholeness, having a a well-being both now and forevermore. And we're awaiting that in the kingdom of God. That's what they're hoping. That's what they're looking for. And Jesus says, I have inaugurated it. I have defeated death and sin and Satan. so peace be with you. And look at the response of his disciples. In verse 20, let me just pause for a moment. Would to God this be our response when we hear the word of the Lord. Look what they do. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his disciples. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Not only does Jesus bless his disciples with words, but he also blesses them with his body, if you will. It truly was Jesus. This isn't a figment of their imagination. You know, sometimes when I'm thinking about something for a long period of time and I go to sleep, Those things will appear in my dreams. That's not what's going on here. They haven't been focusing on Jesus for so long and he's gone and that they've fallen asleep. And, well, he appeared to them in a dream or in a trance. No, no, no. It was truly Jesus. The one who was scourged and the one who was mocked and the one who was flogged and the one who was crowned with thorns and the one who was pierced for our transgressions, the one who was speared in our stead. That Jesus is the one who is before their very Eyes, It is this one, the one bearing the marks of brutality, at the same time stood beside his beloved disciples more beautiful than ever before. Hearing their Lord's words and seeing their Lord's wounds, the disciples were glad. Jesus said, peace be with you. And they beheld the scars. The sacred one The sacred one who satisfied the wrath of God For the salvation of their souls And now they knew In a whole new sense That by his stripes They were healed And again we shouldn't be surprised By this That the disciples were glad We already saw in chapter 16 verse 20 Jesus says Truly truly I say to you you Will weep and lament but the world will rejoice you will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy he continues giving an analogy when a woman is giving birth she has sorrow because her hour has come but when she has delivered the baby she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world so also so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Jesus kind of knows what he's doing, does he not? He tells them before he goes to the cross, look, you're going to have joy. It's going to hurt for a moment. You're going to have sorrow for a moment. But I will, rep- will appear again, and you will have joy that is irrevocable. The peace that Jesus offered before his death, he ultimately provides in and after his resurrection. While the disciples would indeed have great peace, they would also have a great commission. Look with me, please, at verses 21 through 23. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and Said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. There are three details that I want to expound on from these three verses. First is that Jesus sends his disciples into the world for mission. Second is that Jesus gifts his disciples the Holy Spirit for mission. And lastly, Jesus grants his disciples authority for mission First let's look at Jesus send, sends his disciples into the world for mission The Greek text says Jesus was apostello And I usually don't like to say Greek words in the pulpit Because they're not helpful to be completely honest But every once in a while you hear a Greek word and you understand something Because apostello sounds a lot like apostle And that's exactly what apostle means, sent one. In a unique way, we could say that Jesus himself was an apostle. But then this unique apostle is going to send his disciples out who are sent ones as well, apostles. And throughout the book of John, John favors the term disciples over the term apostles. Apostles. Some of the other gospels use the word apostles, but John favors disciples. But nevertheless, we see the concept of disciples being sent ones here in our text. And so when I say apostolic peace and apostolic proof and apostolic purpose, all I mean is that we're referring to these sent ones, that Jesus Jesus himself hand-selected and and sent. And contrary to what some people may say or believe, there is no such thing as a modern-day apostle. An apostle saw the Lord Jesus Christ and was sent by Jesus Christ himself. Jesus sends these 11. And we can think of it this way. That Jesus, after having completed the mission, sends his disciples, his apostles on Another mission that is inseparable from his life and his death and his resurrection. But Jesus, as a result of his mission, inaugurates a, another mission. And this is known as the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority in heaven has been given unto me. And then looking to his disciples, he says, Go therefore, and make disciples of all nations, of all people groups. Go and make disciples. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the good news in the context of your home, in the context of your community. Go and make disciples, baptizing them in the singular name of the triune God, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe or to obey all that I have commanded you. It doesn't stop there. And behold... I'm with you to the very end of the age. Behold, I'm with you, he says. There is an accompanying peace provided by Jesus as he sends his disciples out for this great commission. There, of course, is an experiential peace, if you will, that the disciples receive from Jesus as they're with them and as they see him and as he's going to teach them the things about the kingdom of God for a 40-day period of time. You see that in Acts 1. But there is also a proclamation of peace, that the good news of Jesus Christ necessarily consists of declaring that wretched sinners like you and I can experience peace with the holy, righteous God by means of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a proclamation of peace as well, but also there is missional peace, knowing that just as the father sends his son, that the son sends his own. And this brings us to the second detail that Jesus gifts his disciples the Holy Spirit for mission. And much ink has been spilled about Jesus breathing on his disciples and saying, receive the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, in my studies for this sermon, I found over 10 views of what exactly this means. And while I do humbly hold a view, I think sometimes the questions that are asked of this text misses the point. I think it misses the point if we ask the wrong questions or if we push the details too far then we end up being on the wrong road i wasn't there and i know you guys weren't there either but i know god's word is true and i know that that jesus breathed on them, and he said receive the holy spirit i also know in acts chapter 2 that those same disciples along with others 120 in total they're waiting for the holy spirit the day of pentecost And so what do we do with that? Some people say that, well, here in John chapter 20, it's kind of figurative that Jesus breathes on them and says, receive my spirit, and that's an indicator of what's going to happen on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Other people say, well, no, there's a real giving of the spirit in some sense that is a little mysterious, but they also receive the spirit in Acts chapter 2. And we can talk about this for a long period of time. I'll tell you what I believe, and feel free to talk with me some other time about it if we want to get into details. But I want us to make the big picture clear. What I personally believe is that Jesus is referring to a a true, a genuine and authentic giving of the disciples or giving of the Holy Spirit to his disciples. I'm reminded, just as John often is playing off of the book of Genesis and is playing off of the book of Isaiah as well. I'm reminded of Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. What happens in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7? That God creates man and he breathes the breath of life into him and he becomes a living creature, right? And so I think in a similar way that the risen Christ now breathes the breath of new life into these disciples who are new creatures in the resurrected Christ. But the point is this that when he sends them out for for mission, they're not alone. I'm not 100% sure about what happened and what took place here, but the major point is that Jesus does not leave his disciples alone. He gives the Holy Spirit to his disciples for the mission that he also sends them on. In other words, the Lord doesn't send his disciples out for mission without divine help in the mission. And again, we shouldn't be surprised by this. John chapter 14, verses 16 through 17. Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give yet another helper to be with you forever in the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So there's a unique reception of the Holy Spirit for these 11 disciples. And this unique reception, in this case, is a further aspect of the peace that Jesus blesses them with. This brings us to the third and final detail. Jesus grants his disciples authority for mission. Jesus grants his disciples authority for mission. We know in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, speaking of the church, it declares that the church is built on the foundation of, of the apostles and, and prophets, uh, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so from that verse and from what Jesus says here, this idea that they have the authority to forgive sins, we understand there's a sense in which the mission of the disciples forms the groundwork for the church. But what is that sense? And the text says this, this is crazy. They have authority Forgive sins. What does that mean? What does that mean? I don't believe in popery. There's no man, no apostle standing upon this earth that has the right in and of himself to declare that someone's sins are forgiven based on a task that they have done. Remember Mark chapter 2, the healing of the paralytic, these guys bring their friend to Jesus as he's teaching and they really want him healed and Jesus looks and he says what your sins have been forgiven and what do all the religious authorities do they start freaking out right whoa 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 wait a minute only God only God can forgive sins And Jesus, I assume cool, calm, and collected, looks to them and says, so that you may know the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. I say, get up and walk. And by the power of his word, he heals this paralytic. And the paralytic walks away, having his sins been forgiven, which is the far better result of this instance, and with the ability to walk again. Only God can forgive sins. And so when we say that Jesus said that the apostles or the disciples have the ability or the authority to forgive sin, what we're not saying is that they in and of themselves, what we would call ontological authority, that because of who they are, because of their being, because of their isness, they can now say, well, I'm akin to God and I can therefore forgive sins. But what we are saying is this that the apostles have a new function and that they derive what we call a derivative authority. They derive authority from Christ himself and that they will proclaim a message of the forgiveness of sins. And we remember in chapter 14 and chapter 15, what does Jesus say? Jesus says that he's going to send the comforter, the paraclete, the the helper, and that, that that helper, the Holy Spirit, would remind them of everything that Jesus said. And that they would declare it and they would proclaim it and eventually it would be penned. And so they have the authority on the basis of the Spirit of God living in them and on the basis of Jesus Christ mentoring them and discipling them to speak as they are inspired by the Spirit of God, to behold the person and work of Christ, to believe Him and you will be forgiven, and to reject Him, you already stand condemned. And as they proclaim, and as they preach, They can truly say, by the authority vested in me as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you trust, wholly trust, and solely trust on the person and work of Jesus Christ, saints hear me, your sins are forgiven. However, if you reject, if you reject the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, then you stand condemned before a holy and righteous God. And maybe you're here for the first time and, and you don't know what I'm referring to when I say the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm saying that God himself assumed a human nature and entered into his own creation, not because he needed to, but because he's glorious and gracious And although mankind had sinned against God, we rebelled against God, and therefore we deserve death and wrath forever and ever, that Jesus Christ lived perfectly deserving zero wrath. But he stood in the place of his people. And what we deserve, he took upon himself. He was nailed to a tree and he was tortured, and he was mocked, and he was reviled, and he gave up his life because no one has authority to take the life of Jesus Christ. He has authority to lay it down, and he has the authority to take it back up again. And he did take it back up again. He rose from the grave. He ascended into heaven. Even now as I speak to you, he is seated at the right hand of God and he will come again as we sang earlier to judge the living and the dead. This is what I speak of when I say the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if it's that Christ as proclaimed and declared in scripture that you're trusting on today, then praise the Lord, your sins have been forgiven. As glorious as that is. If you are not trusting in that Christ today, I say this with all truthfulness and sincerity you will have hell to pay for it. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Behold his glory and his splendor. Behold the scars upon his hands and come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the peace receive the peace, the everlasting, irrevocable peace that he offers to his disciples here. One commentator said of this verse, Jesus shares his authority with his disciples, or better, Jesus joins his disciples to his already established and already operating authority with which their functional authority finds its source and purpose. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord that the gospel goes forward in the power of the Holy Spirit by simple men like the apostles and every generation afterwards. Brothers and sisters, these three details concerning Jesus's immediate disciples is representative of the church also. It's representative of the church also. Now we. The church, those of us who are in Christ, must remember that we are also sent. We must remember that we are also given of his spirit. And we must also remember that we have derivative functional authority to forgive sins only, only insofar as we proclaim the gospel and tell people that they are forgiven in Christ alone and are condemned outside of Christ. But there is a problem for the original disciples, at least one of them. Look at verses 24 and 25. It says, now Thomas, one of the twelve called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. What a bold statement. That's a problem. Thomas isn't there. Only 10 of the 11 are there. And just as Mary said to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. Those 10 who were there now say to Thomas, we have seen the Lord. However, Thomas seems to need to both see and touch the wounds of Jesus or he will never believe what's the major problem we're not the disciples just sent on mission after having received the spirit to declare forgiveness of sins yet one of their very own doesn't believe their testimony That seems to be a problem. Have they failed? Were they unsuccessful in the mission that the Lord just gave them? What were they thinking? You see, Thomas is representative of mankind in this verse. People laugh and mock. Doubting Thomas is what he's dubbed, right? Friend, apart from the spirit of the living God, you are... Doubting Thomas. After all, seeing is believing, right? How will the mission, the gospel mission of God, continue by means of Jesus' disciples with the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ just around the corner? That is the question that this text poses to us that is the question that this text will ultimately answer in just a moment however Thomas did not have the gospel of John to find that answer so what about him look at verse 26 eight days later his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them although the doors were locked Jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you What Jesus had done eight days earlier, he did again. But this time, Thomas was present. And I don't know about you, but if I were Thomas, I would have wanted to go and hide in the corner. The guilt and the shame and the doubt and the error. Jesus could have strongly rebuked Thomas. But Jesus says, with Thomas there, peace be with you. Brothers, sisters, and friends, the first reason for you to trust and obey the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples' testimony about him, both now and forevermore, is this apostolic peace that we just witnessed in this text. The disciples had the peace of Christ. They fixed their eyes on Christ and turned the world upside down by the spirit of the living God. They would be mocked. They would be jailed. They would be persecuted. They'd be beaten. They'd be afflicted. And most of them would be killed because of their testimony of Christ. But all the while, but all the while, he had the surpassing peace of God. That peace which surpasses all understanding. Such that they continued on mission knowing God help us to know this. They continued on mission knowing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. This apostolic peace is the same peace that those in Christ have by the spirit such that we trust and obey the resurrected Lord let's move on to the second reason to trust and obey the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ look with me please at verse 27 after saying peace be with you to the disciples he then said to Thomas put your fingers here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus offers to meet Thomas's request, stating, "Do not disbelieve, but believe. Notice how much the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ is repeating himself, that which he had already uttered before the crucifixion. Chapter fourteen verse one says what? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I just am in awe of the pastoral ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good shepherd, knowing his sheep, and tending to his sheep, and caring for his sheep. Rebuke was in order. A, a harsh remark was in order. And there is obviously a connotation of, of rebuke here, but he's so gentle and he's so tender and he's so patient. Well, how does Thomas respond? Thomas answered him in the only way he should have answered him. My Lord, my Lord and my God, Although Thomas said that he would have to see and touch the Lord Jesus' wounds before he would believe, the text indicates here that Jesus, rather that Thomas, does not touch the Lord. Rather, he sees the Lord, and he is brought into a state of belief. And Thomas' words are amazing. And they do not allow for any credible explanation other than the fact that Jesus is both and simultaneously, Lord and God. There are some who seek to deny the deity of Christ, and they have a few suggestions on this text. One of those suggestions is that Thomas looked to Jesus and uttered, my Lord, and then looked toward heaven and uttered, my God. I don't wish to mock such persons. It's a sad, sad and dark state to be in. To transition this text into something that is so plain and so clear. To come up with ways to argue against the deity of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Rather, let us look to Thomas's words and be refreshed. It says that Thomas answered him. In other words, he is replying to Jesus, the words that are about to proceed and fall out of Thomas' mouth are directed completely and entirely to Jesus alone. And then Thomas calls him two things. He acknowledges him with proper titles. He says, Lord and God. Beloved, saving faith in Jesus requires acknowledging Jesus as he truly is. And he is both Lord and God. When we think of his lordship, we think of a master. We think of one with supreme authority. We think of him as immediately head of the church and as a matter of fact, the head of all things. There's a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is what? That Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The lordship of Christ requires our submission such that when we hear the word of the Lord, We submit to the word of the Lord. Thomas calls Jesus Lord and God. Hear me, saints. Jesus is more than your big brother. Jesus is more than your Savior. Jesus is God. Do we begin to try to comprehend and explain God? I'm going to read a definition of the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is how they express who God is, and what I'm saying is this is Jesus. That each person of the triune God, each fully holy God, eternally equivalent, co eternal, one God. Ever existing in three persons. Jesus is God, and this is an explanation of God. Listen to what they write. There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own, immutable, and most righteous will for his own glory." Most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God. If Jesus is God, then his godness exaltation that we submit according to his lordship yes but when we acknowledge him as God we humbly bow before him and we lift him up and we say you and you alone are worthy but Jesus being Lord and God is not all that Thomas says notice what else Thomas does Thomas this profession of faith if you will is personal he says my Lord and my God often the the man who stands behind this desk realizes that there's a real sense that he stands between two worlds That, that there is God and that there is the people of God, and that there is the man of God on any given Sunday in any given congregation whose task is to open up the word of God and to proclaim the word of God, realizing that God knows where each and every one of you are at, and I do not. But the preacher's fear, this pastor's fear, is that there may be some in our midst who have been coming to church for years. That's what they were to do so, they come and they sing without giving thought to what they're singing, and they listen to the prayers and maybe themselves even pray. We'll read their Bible, we'll do a lot of Christian things, yet they've never uttered these words in sight of Jesus, my Lord and my God. Oh, please. Dear friend, don't depart from this place without acknowledging Jesus as he truly is. Yes, he is Lord and God, but the question is, is he your Lord and your God? We would do well to say the same thing of Jesus as Thomas. Jesus responds to what Thomas says. Jesus said to him, have you believed because... You have seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus' response indicates at least two truths. First is this. Christ's question suggests that prior to seeing the resurrected Christ, Thomas already had enough to believe. He was with him for his earthly ministry, his public ministry. He also received the private teaching of God. And even more importantly... Thomas was the recipient of eyewitness testimony from the other apostles who had seen the resurrected Christ. So on that basis, Thomas should believe. But another truth is, in this text, there's a blessing in Jesus' words for future believers. Although seeing the risen Christ both verified and vindicated the claims of Jesus prior to his death— Seeing the risen Christ is unnecessary to trust and obey the risen Christ. And this is because eyewitness, spirit-inspired, apostolic testimony is sufficient for genuine, life-saving, life-giving belief. And this is the answer to the question that I posited earlier. How will the mission, the gospel mission of God, continue by means of Jesus' disciples with the ascension of Jesus right around the corner? The answer is eyewitness, spirit-inspired, apostolic testimony. People who receive such testimony, Jesus says, are blessed. People who receive such testimony, Jesus prayed for in John chapter 17. He prayed for his immediate disciples, and he also prayed for those who would believe because of those immediate disciples' words. One commentator said this of this text, this blessing comes to all who believe on the basis of the proclaimed gospel and the evidences for its uh, validity. Believers living today are not deprived by not seeing him physically. Instead, they are recipients of his special blessing. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. This testimony is twofold. First, in the first century, it would be the apostolic proclamation of the gospel. As they were led by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit to go and proclaim the Word of God. And God, in His grace, in His grace, preserved a portion of those teachings, a portion of those sermons. Every portion that we need for life and godliness through the precious promises of His Word, He preserved such that we, 2,000 years later, can open the good book and say, thus, Sayeth the Lord. Brothers, sisters, and friends, the second reason for you to trust and obey the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ and his disciples' testimony about him, both now and forevermore, is apostolic proof, and I might add to that, apostolic proof and apostolic proclamation. They devoted their lives to proclaiming the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. They both saw the proof, and they penned the This brings us to the third reason, apostolic purpose in the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. If you've been with us for any period of time, you might feel like these two verses have been preached maybe almost every week of the sermon series because this is the purpose statement of the book of John. The purpose statement for the book of John is is really simple. Hey, Jesus did a lot of other signs. He, He did a lot of other amazing miracles. As a matter of fact, the other Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke record about 35 of those miracles. But John says, I'm gonna stick to seven or eight depending on who's counting and that he's going to write these things for a very particular purpose. And that purpose is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in him, you would have life. Do you believe? Do you believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis of this testimony by the power of the Spirit of God. If so, beloved, then peace, peace be with you, both now and forevermore. Let us pray. Father, we have read your word. We have beheld your son. We have given thanks to the seal of our salvation, your spirit. And Lord, it's my prayer now that this week as we think about what was just proclaimed in this text, we would have peace such that we might proclaim and that our purpose in life in every aspect be your glory and not our own. We ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior. I ask these things in the name of my Lord and my God, Jesus Christ. Amen.